Greetings, everybody. This is a Travel Addict podcast where you can hear candid stories and discussions about business and adventure travel from around the world with activities such as trekking, diving, camping, driving, cruising, and just plain chilling out somewhere. We talk about lots of experiences in places all over the world, including the grand, the remote, the edgy, the risque, and ones of questionable merit. Education, fulfillment, and wonder enrich our lives. And of all the books in the world, the best stories are found between the pages of a passport. Stay tuned. Hello, everybody. Malcolm Teasdale here, the travel addict. I got to tell you about a trip I took a few years ago. Um, It's called, well, this is what I called it anyway, The Long and Worthwhile Trip into the Middle of Nowhere. The reason I say that is because I take a a lot of trips to places where people have not even heard of or ask that question, why on earth do you want to go there? Yes, it's in the ocean. And I can't remember who said this statement. The ocean is everything I want to be, beautiful, mysterious, wild, and free. So what on earth is a place I'm talking about? Well, it's an island. It's called Sipadan, S-I-P-A-D-A-N. And you're probably thinking, yep, never heard of that. Sipadan is the only oceanic island belonging to the country of Malaysia. And actually, it was formed by living corals growing on top of an extinct volcano. Where is it? Well, it's actually located in the Celebus Sea off the coast of Sabah in Borneo, which Borneo is part of Malaysia, actually. Now, at one time, it was part of a territorial dispute uh, between uh, Malaysia and Indonesia that was eventually resolved, I believe, in 2002 by the International Court of Justice, and since then, it has been conflict-free, which is a good thing. Now, it is well known as one of the richest marine habitats in the world, and in turn is well protected by the Malaysian government, which is a great thing to do. Obviously, dive spots around the world are protected by the government that actually owns that land, and it's a good thing. It's one of the most challenging places to reach because of its remote location. Now, not one person I told uh, that I was going to Sibadan had ever heard of the place. Now, this is not surprising, as it is located in such a remote location, and its significance to the general public is absolutely nothing, except to the Malaysian government. More about that later. Now, my journey took me out of Fort Walton Beach Airport to Atlanta. Now, that's a six-hour layover in Atlanta, um, which I just rested in the lounge there, and I took a 14-hour flight to Seoul, Korea, uh, with Delta on one of their new A350 aircrafts. Excellent. Fortunately, I did secure a business class seat with a flatbed seat, and uh, so I was able to, uh, when the plane departed at 12.30 a.m., I was ready for a good night's sleep. Got a reasonable one. Now, maybe the glass of wine or two helped. Uh, in addition to the ones I already have in the Delta Sky Lounge and previously. <laughs> when I found my seat and uh, dressed down for the night, 
One of the very efficient Delta cabin staff came by and offered me a glass of champagne. Note that I did, in fact, dress down in the privacy of the bathroom, not in my seat, of course. Now, it wasn't long after departure that the tablecloths appeared. Apparently, I had ordered a meal in advance of my flight, so I felt obliged to eat it. Couldn't even remember doing that. Now, yes, I ate it, especially since it may have been several hours before any other food was to be served. Now, for a long flight, I did sleep for quite a few hours, although when we landed at Seoul, Korea, at 4 a.m. in the morning, my body still needed more rest. Now, Seoul Airport is very pleasant, as it is spotlessly clean, very modern, and easy to navigate. Now, I can't say that about some airports in the world. Paris comes to mind. Now, knowing in advance that I was going to be arriving in the middle of the night, I had booked a room at a transit hotel located in the terminal, and I booked it for eight hours, of which I slept solidly for six of them. Now, the transit hotel booked rooms in four-hour blocks, so this helped to ease the jet lag a little. At least it's better than sleeping at the gate, you know, where the plane departs from. Now, after another six-hour flight to Singapore with the excellent Korean Airlines, I decided to stay in the city center for two nights uh, just to help with the remaining effects of jet lag. Now, Singapore's Changi Airport has been voted the world's best for the last few years, and it's easy to understand why. It's super modern with plenty of shops, restaurants, activities to keep passengers entertained, so it reduces the annoyance of delayed and canceled flights, which, of course, there's always going to be a few of those. Now, from the airport, it's a 20-minute taxi ride, and that took me to the famous Orchard Road, where I had booked into the Orchard Rendezvous Hotel. Very comfortable, four-star property. Now, I lived in Singapore during 2007 and 2008, so it was familiar territory for me. It is still meticulously clean, virtually crime-free, and sophisticated country, as I remember, but now has the unbelievable ranking as the world's most expensive place to visit. Now, by the time I checked in, it was 9 p.m., but I was wide awake. Yeah, my internal clock was upside down, but as I do in situations like this, I listen to what my body tells me. In addition to the adrenaline of being in one of my favorite places in the world, it helped give me a second win. Now, one of my old haunts was close by, an Irish pub called Muddy Murphy's, which is where I enjoyed a plate of fish and chips. Now, in case you were wondering, it was planned in advance, which I, is why I stayed at the nearby Orchard Rendezvous Hotel. Now, I decided to have a nightcap at the Ipanema World Music Bar in the notorious Orchard Towers, a four-floor complex that houses clubs, bars, massage parlors, many of which are dubious and sort of risque places. Now, the Ipanema Bar has always had excellent live bands performing there, most of them from the Philippines. As midnight approached, I did the right thing and returned to my hotel room. Now, the next day was intended to rid the remaining jet lag effects by resting, apart from an evening in Boat Key to visit the Penny Black Pub and an Indian meal at my favorite Maharaja restaurant. Now, much to my dismay, the restaurant manager, Mr. Singh, who I came to know quite well, had recently passed away. 
However, the new manager gave me a discount for being a regular customer. Um, Another successful night's sleep, and I was ready for the unknown. I took a four-hour flight on Malaysia Airlines via Kuala Lumpur, which took me to Tawau, spelled T-A-W-A-U, which is in the southern Sabah region of Borneo. I was now in a relatively unknown area, although a few years before I did stay in Kota Kinabalu, located on Borneo's north coast, which provided me access to its dramatic rainforest, which I did trekking in, actually. Now, after passport control and collecting my luggage, I was on a 90-minute drive to the small, predominantly Muslim town of Semporna. Now, apart from the driver, there was another passenger, an English girl named Sasha, who was 23 years old. This was her last stop on her 12-month adventure away from home, just east of London. She had spent time as a tour guide in Goa, India, and a couple of other places in Asia, which is a fantastic thing to do. Her reasoning for this adventure was that she wanted to do something extraordinary before settling down in the workplace and maybe starting a family. It was very admirable and brave of what she had accomplished, uh, but because she was getting low on funds, she had no choice but to go home. She was staying at a hostel in St. Porter, so the driver dropped her off first and then me at the hotel. Now, my late arrival around 8 p.m. meant that I had to stay overnight at a mediocre Seafest hotel, as my ultimate destination was to be via a boat ride during daylight hours. Now, as I settled down for what was supposed to be a good night's sleep, I received a text message from a friend which was quite disconcerting. Sulawesi, an Indonesian island south of my current location, had just experienced a 6.8 magnitude earthquake, and a tsunami warning had been issued, which included place I was at, Semporna. Now, only East Sulawesi was under evacuation, but I looked on the positive side, as I at least didn't have to go anywhere else that night, except evacuation, but I didn't. Now, even if I had to, the nearby surrounding jungle would not have helped much. <laughs> anyway, when I woke up in the morning, the tsunami warning had been cancelled. Yeah, uh, a bullet dodged, maybe. Now I've dodged many bullets in my life. So Anyway, with my luggage, I walked to the waterfront along uneven footpaths. My suitcase wheels never recovered from that 300-yard wall, by the way. The resort where I was staying had an office at the port area, so I was able to check in. I knew beforehand that I had to be dressed and ready for scuba diving trip that day when I checked in which was a little unusual. Anyway, there was about 15 people on the boat, including Sasha, which took us to Malbour Island, spelled M-A-B-U-L, Malbour Island, about an hour's boat ride further into the middle of nowhere, it seemed. Now, apart from a few residents living in makeshift waterfront homes, Malbour Island is home to just two or three resorts. Mine was called the Scuba Junkie Resort, which is close to to 100% of the guests where they were, the reason they were there is for that one reason, diving. Now, the local residents adjacent to the resort appear to form a tight-knit community, even though their living conditions are at poverty level. Fishing is very important to them, 
and even the young children take the family's boats to the deeper water hopefully catch dinner or breakfast. Don't know what type of fish they'll be catching right there. Now, the island's resorts provide employment and assistance to some degree. However, because of the island's remoteness, urgent health care is almost non-existent. For me, the Mabul Island Resort was a gateway to Sibadam, which is uninhabited by people. After reaching the resort, our luggage was removed and the 15 passengers divided up and boarded two dive boats. The adventure started with a bang. So after two dives in the vicinity of the resort, we were back at the boat dock and checking into our rooms. How strange was that? Normally you expect to check in room first before you go diving. Anyway, my room was a detached hut, spacious, comfortable. I was happy and content. Now, virtually every resident staying at the resort were participants in diving, either to become certified or were already qualified and just enjoying the challenges of the deep. Now, even though I was one of the oldest and the only American in the group that came from about 20 different nations, the camaraderie was excellent. Everyone was there for the same reason. Basically, if you weren't a scuba diver, you simply wouldn't be there. Now, Sipadan is widely recognized as one of the world's best scuba diving sites and is both a marine park and a national park of the country of Malaysia where humans are only allowed on about 100 yards of the beachfront of Sipadan and only during daylight hours. The rest of the island belongs to the local wildlife, including turtles, reptiles, birds and other small critters. The surrounding water is the island's treasure. The Malaysian government only grants permits to a few people each day to visit this special place and only for the purpose of diving. Now, I purchased my permit several months before I started my trip and that was a good move because some divers took a chance to obtain one on arrival, which, well, they never got the permit. Their only option were dive sites around Malbor Island, which on reflection are still very good. Now, if I didn't have a permit for Sipadan, I would never have taken the trip in the first place, in the hope that I would obtain one on arrival. So that's important. Surprisingly, well over 50% of the divers did not obtain one in advance. There were some disappointments, obviously, but they had to suck it up and enjoy the other local dive sites. Now, quite a few of the residents stayed in uh, a dormitory, which included in Sasha, running low on dollars. The experience of diving in such a special location caused a type of accommodation to become sort of insignificant in their minds. The age group of the people who stayed in the dorms was substantially less than mine, and it did not phase them at all. And probably a few years ago, wouldn't have bothered me either. Now, everyone enjoyed their time. The restaurant was effectively a canteen that looked like a large tiki hut, it was a help yourself scenario, which was just fine with me. The food was adequate and decent in quality. Uh, my wife would have wanted to check out immediately at that resort. However, the type of place I was in would never have interested her one iota in the first place. Suffice to say, that's why I was there by myself. Now, upstairs was the bar area, which doubled as a TV lounge. Excessive drinking was not encouraged by happy hour or any parties because it can affect a person's well-being and judgment underwater. The dive sites in the area, especially Sibadan itself, are challenging. For newly qualified people, there are easy sites available. Now, in addition, some people were there to get qualified because 
they wanted to do it at one of the world's most famous dive locations. The third day was my one and only Sibidan trip. The 10 divers had to be on the dock at 6 a.m. I was ready with my GoPro camera and spare batteries. The dive master in charge was a crusty old Englishman called Simon. He had been in his profession for many years and had the privilege of diving Sipadan three days a week. He knew the dive sites around the island like the back of his hand because actually he told us that. If you ignored his rough edges, then he had a decent side to him. He reiterated the fact that Sipadan was to be different than anyone had experienced before and that no one should take the dive lightly. Every diver had to register with a small government office on Sibadan and have ID to match their permit. Simon stressed that no one needed to do any talking apart from him to the security staff. Now, after about an hour's boat ride and a briefing about the upcoming dives, we arrived on the island's shoreline and walked to the small office to be officially checked in. Five minutes later, we were back on the boat and on our way to the first of three dive sites that we would be visiting that day. Simon was in his late 50s and about six months ago had a leg injury where he was rushed to St. Paul Hospital. I remember him saying, I wouldn't want that experience on my worst enemy. Yep, that hospital was not good. Now, the hospital in Kota Kinabalu is apparently excellent, but far too distance away to address any urgent problem. What he was trying to say is that everyone needed to be aware of their dive computers, depth, decompression levels, and do not attempt anything that may cause them physical harm. Basically, anyone who encounters a life-threatening situation, help is too far away to make much difference. That thought crossed my mind when we left Semporna. Now, this was indeed serious diving, not for people of a nervous disposition. Now, Simon also stated that he would be last back on the boat and asked for myself and other dives to stand by the stepladder to weigh down the boat a little, which in turn will lower them into the water so he could raise his left leg enough to be the first to the first rung to pull himself out. Now, after the final briefing, we all backflipped from the side of the boat into the water, then followed each other for about 10 minutes at starting depth of about 20 feet, gradually descending as we moved forward. The water was clear blue, and the only thing we could see were each other until signs of life gradually appeared. It was a haunting feeling up until that point because it gave us the impression we were not moving forward as there were no solid objects around to relate to our momentum. The coral reef was colourful and the marine life was extensive. The underwater currents were a little unpredictable at times, so everyone had to be cognizant of that small hazard. Now, Tipidan is famous for Barracuda Point, an area where thousands of fish of the same name accumulate to make a tornado effect in the water. Simon did state that we would not see them because they have temporarily moved to cooler waters. I think they knew I was coming to the region and decided to get out of town, basically. Now, there are many famous dive sites around Sibidan, namely Turtle Cavern, South Point, Hanging Gardens, White Tip Avenue, Lobster Lairs, and many others. In total, we did three dives, but the highlight was being surrounded by thousands of jackfish and about 20 feet below the surface. All the divers were lost for words after we returned to the boat, but felt the need to high-five each other. Luckily for me, I've had 
these few minutes on video, that experience itself was worth the trip down to that part of the world, even though the video I have does not do it justice. There were other dives around the area during my remaining time on Mabo Island, all exciting, different, apart from one. On that dive at 60 feet below the surface, my air hose disconnected from my regulator, meaning no oxygen. A large gulp of seawater was my wake-up call, at which time I thought about a swear word, but as I couldn't speak one, of course, then held my breath and swam to my dive buddy and shared his oxygen supply. Swimming to the surface at that time was not not an option because of the depth and obstructions in the way. This is why you never dive alone. If I was in this scenario, I would not be here telling you this story right now. Bullet number two dodged. A regulator hose malfunction has never happened to me in 20 years, so I figure I'm good for another 20 before it happens again. At which time, I probably wouldn't be diving anyway. Now, at depths around Sibidan and Mabor Island, there are various species of marine life that do not even look like fish or anything I have seen before. I have these on videos as well. Now, after 18 dives over five days, I was ready to head back to civilization. In fact, after two dives on my final day, the boat returned me to Semporna, where I changed into street clothes at the resort's port facility. That night, I stayed at the Halo Hotel on the outskirts of Semporna. Now, this was a small guest house that occupied the same building as stores and offices. Even though I ventured out in the evening, the area was pretty nondescript and its residents were 90% Muslim. Now, that didn't bother me at all, and I found a Chinese family restaurant that offered basic food and a chingtao beer. It was time for reflection and a good night's sleep. One of the reasons for staying overnight in Semporna was the fact I could not fly inside 18 hours of my last scuba diving activity. At about 9am, I was picked up at the hotel and driven to Tawo Airport for my flight to Kuala Lumpur. My journey home took me 33 hours beginning with a flight to Guangzhou, China, then a lengthy layover before a 13-hour flight on the very good China Southern Airlines to Los Angeles. After a three-hour layover in LAX, I took a red-eye flight to Atlanta before a short-haul flight back to Fort Walton Beach. I made it home by 9 a.m., ready to start my day. Lucky me. Many thanks for joining me today. This is Malcolm Teasdale signing off. Before I do, please check out my website, MalcolmJTeasdale.com, for more information about my travels around the world. Okay, folks, talk to you later. Bye for now. Stay safe.